scriptures that we look at as well. Most of those are on your handout, so I'd encourage you to follow along if you received the handout this morning as well. But we're in the middle of this series, Christian, where we're looking at the meaning of a truly Christian life. And if you're joining us for the first time or if you've missed a couple of weeks, uh, remember, or just to catch you up to speed, we're, we're not studying through a book of the Bible per se, but we're looking at this biblically but topically as far as what are, what are some of the key characteristics some of the key components to really experiencing the fullness of the Christian life. It's one thing to say, yes, I am a Christian, but really, are we experiencing all that Christ intended for us to as we follow him? And then as the world sees us, are they seeing an accurate representation of Christ living in us and living through us? So today we come to the topic of the body of Christ. And what I want you to, really the big thing I want you to come away with this morning is this, we were saved personally and individually by Christ. In other words, I have not a religion, but I have, as you've has been going around for generations now, people have been saying, we don't have a, a religion, but we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And aren't you thankful for that? But that is not the sum, ex, the, the entire definition of my Christian experience. Not only do I have a personal relationship with Jesus, but I have a corporate relationship with the body of Christ. You see, I was not just saved out of the world personally to Christ, but I was saved out of the world and united with Christ and specifically united with the body of Christ. And there's some misunderstandings about that or some improper emphases regarding that. I want to talk about that today. So what you're going to have, and you notice I put part one on here. And so you should be thankful for that because I didn't intend to have a part one and part two. I thought I'm just going to do all this in one. And I'm looking at my notes and I'm thinking, boy, even, you know, even for me, this could go a little long. So we, uh, we're going to divide it up into, into you're like, how, man, how long could that be? Two hours? My goodness. But we're going to shorten it up a little bit and cover this in two parts. But just think of this. You were called not just to a personal relationship with Christ, but to a communal relationship with Christ's body. So let's get to the scriptures, right? Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. Do you read verse 5 and 6 with me out loud? Begin. Ready? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let's pray. Dear Lord, please help us today as we study the scriptures. I pray that you would just make your word known to us, make your will known to us. I need your help this morning, and we as a church, we, we need the, the moving of the Holy Spirit to take the word of God and apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So really, there's going to be two movements this morning. The first part is going to be a bit of a Bible study. So if you like to take notes or circle or underline things, I want to just track uh, the concept of the body of Christ through several other passages then, with the rest of our time, we'll come back to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to draw out some applications. But 
before we draw out the application, it's important that we understand what the Scripture teaches. You agree with that? All right, let's go then. So, what is the body of Christ? What does it mean when we speak of Christ's body? Well, if you follow this, it's really a major theme in the book of Ephesians. Major theme in the book of Ephesians. And first of all, we need to realize that when we talk about the body of Christ, it is what you'll see on your handout as a new covenant reality. A new covenant reality. How many covenants, how many, in this context, how many covenants would we be thinking of? Well, you'd say, oh, there's multiple covenants in the Bible. But in this context, we're dealing with an old covenant and a new covenant. So if we're over here and we're looking at the old covenant, the old covenant, does anybody know? It's a little like Bible trivia right now. Who represents the Old Covenant? Does anybody think of a name? If you were to think of the Old Covenant, what name would come to mind? Abraham? That's a good, that is a good name. But it's not Abraham. There was an Abrahamic covenant, so that's an excellent one. But I heard a couple other people, and I think I heard one over here. What's the other name? Oh, my lovely wife. She got the answer right. Have you seen my notes or no? No. It is, what's the name? Yes, you said it with less confidence that time when I put you on the spot. So it's Moses. So if I were to give you a name for the Old Covenant, it would be that it's associated with Moses. And then what system would come to mind? The law. So we've got Moses, the law, and now give me some ethnicity to go with it. Jewish, bonus points over there. There you go. So we've got Moses, the law, Jewish identity. That's the old covenant. Was it a good covenant? Not a trick question. Was it a good covenant? Oh, 100%. But guess what? We didn't have to settle for good because we got not better, but the best covenant. And what's the name with that covenant? Go ahead. What's the name? Jesus. And what's the system? Moses, law, Jewish, Jesus, what? Grace. You, you, we got some theologians in here. So Jesus, and I, don't, and I don't mean that sarcastically. I'm joking a little bit, but this is good. You've got Jesus, grace. Ooh, now it's, now what? So, so hang on, we had Moses, Law, Jewish, <laughs> there you go. We've got Jesus, grace, Christian, or you could say church, or you could say the body of Christ. When we read that verse at the beginning, there is one Lord, there is one faith, one baptism. And at, in verse number four, there is one body. That is the context in which this is given. You see, the book of Ephesians, in fact, if you, look, if you were to look back, you'd, you'd see some things. So I put on your handout, and I think we have it on the screen, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Speaking of Christ, in Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23, it says, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him, that's Jesus, to be the head over all things to the, say it, to the church, which is his which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So we get a little definition of the church there as the body. 
Now, Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16, gives us a little more clarification. Look at verse 14 of Ephesians 2. For he is our peace. Now, this indicates, if we need peace, that indicates the presence of conflict, the presence of of difference or disagreement. But Jesus is now our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Let's leave that here for a minute. He's broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Do you know who the us is if you study the book of Ephesians? Within the church, within the Ephesian church, there are two groups. And guess what? There are one who came out of, there's one group that came out of this old covenant. They have a Jewish identity. They're part of the system of the law. And they're having a hard time. I mean, they love that they're saved by Jesus. They love that Jesus is their Messiah. And they know that scripture that we sang about, you know, whom the Son sets free, he shall be free indeed. They know that. They're trying to experience this freedom in Christ, but they're still kind of hung up where? Still kind of hung up over here in this old system and who they were before Christ. And they don't know what to do with this identity. But then over here is this other group of people. They were about as immoral as you can get. I mean, they're part of the Greco-Roman culture of the day. They behaved immorally. They had immoral thoughts, immoral culture. They were just, there's nothing biblical about their identity at all. They're, well, what the Bible called Gentile. So you have Gentile and Jewish identities. But in Christ, what happened to both of those identities? They died, and a new identity was born. And that identity is the body of Christ. So, we've got the verse here. Broken down the middle wall of partition between us. You look at verse number 15, but then in the back, give me verse number 16, Gideon. Skip ahead to verse number 16. And that he might reconcile both unto God in what? In one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. That this new identity, this new covenant in Christ, means that the Jewish identity is, for them, that's not their identity any longer. The Gentile Greek or the European uh, barbarians, as they were known in the day, that identity is all gone because we are now one in Christ. And can I share with you this morning, whoever you were before Jesus Christ is gone. That identity is gone. Your primary identity is not ethnicity. Your primary identity is not race. Your primary identity is not nationality. It's not economic status. It's not a family identity. All of that is done away, and we have all come to share the same identity as the children of God and members of the body of Christ. That's an amazing thing. Now, if we could just grab a hold of that, if we could really live that out, boy, our churches, our visible expressions of the body would be a whole lot healthier. All right. You can see, I'll skip over at Colossians 1.18, talks about Jesus being the head of the, the, the church, which is his body. And now look at this passage, 1 Corinthians 12.13. 1 Corinthians 12.13 
For by one Spirit, this is a key verse. How did this happen? For by one Spirit are we all, read this phrase with me, are we all what? Baptized what? Into one body. Who's doing the baptism? The Spirit. The spirits, so we're Baptists, so we do a lot of dunking in water. In fact, in a couple of weeks, somebody, somebody said they want to be baptized, and we're going to have a baptismal service. If you need to be baptized in water, come talk to me, talk to my dad. We'll, we can talk about that and get you. If you've never followed Christ in baptism, that's an important step. But this isn't a pastor or a minister baptizing someone in water. This is a far more supernatural baptism. In fact, John the Baptist was the one who said, <laughs> I baptize you with water, but there is one coming after me. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's what this is. Look, so who's doing the baptizing? The Spirit. And the person's not being baptized into water. They're being baptized into what? You see it? Go ahead. Being baptized into what? The body. This is a supernatural baptism that's an invisible baptism that takes place the moment a person comes to faith in Christ. Again, we can't miss the significance of this. When you are born again, when you repent of your sin and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, yes, you now belong to Christ. But when you belong, when you belong to Christ, you're also baptized into His body and there's a whole lot of other people who are there with you. There's a whole lot of other people that are part of that. So you are, you are united with Christ, but you are united with other believers into the body of Christ. Are you following with me so far? Just do one of these things. If, we, if, we, if you do this, we'll move on. You know? so, so even if you don't, let's, here we go. So there is a, there is a new identity, a new covenant reality. And then secondly, as we think about understanding, there is a visible expression. So how, would, how can anyone see the body of Christ? How do you see the body of Christ? Well, you look at a local church. The idea of a Christian, and you can study the, the, the New Testament, but the idea of any Christian not being united to a local visible body display of Christ's body, not being part of a local church, that is, while it's common in our world today, it is completely foreign to the New Testament. You will not find Christians living on their own saying, oh, well, you know, I'm attached to the body of Christ in some kind of invisible sense. No, the body of Christ is designed to be visibly displayed to the world through the existence of the local New Testament church. In fact, you may not know this, or you may know this, but the word church, the word church is a Greek word, and it's the word, it comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And the ekklesia literally means the assembly, an assembly. And in the days of the, when the New Testament was written, they would call an ekklesia for all kinds of reasons. They would say, all right, we, have a, we need to have a town meeting, let's say, so let's call the ecclesia, let's call the assembly. And everybody would come and assemble together. Well, the New Testament church 
took that, that concept and brought it to a whole nother level. The Holy Spirit took the idea of the assembly and filled it with theological truth and spiritual meaning and said that, yes, we now assemble but we do not assemble. We do not assemble to uh, to have a good social function. We don't assemble to enact political change. We don't assemble just to do good in the world. We assemble to display the body of Christ to all those around us. So when we gather together, we are not so. We are not only Christians as we individually behave out there, we represent Christ, but we represent Christ as we form the assembly, as we are the gathering of the body of Christ. And therefore, one of, if not the most important relationship in every Christian's life is his or her relationship to the local church. Because as as you display your place within the local body of Christ, you reflect Jesus. Now, Ephesians, I mean, 1 Corinthians talks more about that. We're going to look at that, our our, our specific display, our specific working in, in the body of Christ next week. So let's move on, though. And let's come back to Ephesians and let's spend the rest of our time here. So we see what the body of Christ is and how important it is. But now, look at the, we, we picked up this scripture that we began with in Ephesians 4, but I want to give you a little more context. So back in Ephesians chapter 4, remember, just to reset ourselves, we had read there's one body, one spirit, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But back up to verse number 1 and follow with me verse in verse number one, this is Paul writing to the church. He says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. Beseech you. What does that word mean, to beseech? Yeah, it means to plead or to beg. And he says, I've got something so important to say. And, and listen, he's saying this from where? When he says the prisoner of the Lord, we talked about this in Philippians last week, I think it was. When he says the prisoner of the Lord, he's not using spiritual jargon. He is a prisoner. He has been arrested. And listen, if somebody's writing to you from jail and they say, I just beg you to listen to me, I'd, my ears would perk up. My ears, would, I'd say, I'm, I'm going to listen. He says, I have a plea here. And what it is, is it's a plea for unity. It's a plea for unity in verses 1 through 3. He says, I want you to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now look at verse number 3. Could you read verse number 3 together out loud? Begin, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is a plea not to the body of Christ at large. Because who is he speaking to here? Who is the book written to? The who? The Ephesians. He's speaking to a local gathered church. And he says to them, I beg you, I plead with you to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Notice a couple of things 
in verses 1 through 3. As we're talking about this plea for unity, I want you to notice, first of all, in verse number 1, that Jesus is worthy of a unified people. Jesus is worthy of a unified people. How many of you believe that? I mean, He died for the church. The Bible says that, and I could have pulled the references, but we've got a lot of Scripture today. The Bible says that He gave, He shed His blood for the church. He is worthy of a unified church. He is worthy of us saying, you know what? I will do. It's, we don't need a unified church. Friends, we don't need a unified church because it helps us get along better. We don't need a unified church because, well, things just go smoother that way. Or because then we can agree on how to remodel a building or what to do. Or We don't need unity for any of those reasons. We need unity because we are His body. And He deserves a unified church. Now, that changes how I act a little bit, doesn't it? Because now I'm not... What's the, what's the saying? Let's uh, get along to go along. Did I get that right or is it backwards? Get, yeah, let's get along to go along. You could have that attitude. You could say, all right, well, you know what? I guess, I guess I'll just do my part to get along so that we can, we can move this thing forward. No, it's a totally new motivation that says, I'm going to do whatever it takes, short of compromising the Scripture, I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect the unity of the Spirit of God in this gathering. Now, that really sets the tone for what comes next. As he says, I plead for you to be unified, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Verse number two, with all, what's it say? With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Lowliness means my opinion isn't the one that matters the most. Meekness. My, my, my rights don't have to come first. Long-suffering. I'll be okay even if you keep behaving that way. I'll, I always thought this is a great old English word. I'll suffer with you for a long time. I'll put up with you as long as it takes. Not because I'm afraid you'll leave or because... No, because you are part of the body for which Christ died. So we can suffer along with each other, can't we? Not because you're worth it. Sorry, no offense. Not because I'm worth it, but because it's about His worthiness in love. And then verse 3, we prioritize peace. Verse 3, endeavoring. That means, I just, I noticed from this word endeavoring that it's not going to come naturally. Churches are not unified. They're not unified by accident. Right? It, it's not like, it's not just like, oh, just so happens that we've got all this unity. It, unity must be intentional. He says here, you've got to endeavor to keep it. You know why? You know why? Because somebody is going to offend you. Somebody's going to offend you. Somebody's going to offend me. 
And the moment that happens, I have to make a decision. Am I going to take the offense or will I, what's it say? Endeavor. Will I endeavor? You know, that word endeavor makes me think of, and I, I haven't done the Greek study on that, so forgive me for that. But let's just take the English word. I think of somebody like going on some big adventure. Like, we're going to endeavor, you know, we're going to endeavor to reach Antarctica, you know? And sometimes to maintain unity in the body of Christ, it's, it's a challenge for all of us. But Jesus, Jesus tells us, the Spirit tells us, Jesus is worthy, so practice humility and prioritize the peace. Now, it's not at all cost, right? If someone disobeys the Word of God or if, the, if a church begins to move away from the Scripture, unity is secondary to the purity of, God's, of Christ's body. We understand that, so that's kind of in the background today. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't have time to flesh that out. But the, the truth of who Christ is and what his body is, is the foundation. But then beyond that, our primary focus, our priority should be peace in the body. Okay, let's move along. So to have a united body, there's a plea for unity. And now in verses 4 through 10, you see the basis for the unity. So the basis, first of all, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse number four. There is one body and one what? Okay, so back up to where we began. It's like, yeah, well, you know, remember that we've got the, the, the Gentile group and the Jewish group. They're both coming into this church and there's one body. Oh, uh, yeah, but uh, they have some customs that they, and, and, and I just, oh, that just drives me nuts. Do people ever drive you nuts or rub you the wrong way? Anybody in here ever been rubbed the wrong way? We're New Englanders. It's just part of our DNA. We just come out rubbed the wrong way, I think. Okay? And there's cultural differences, and people behave differently, and they, they have things, and ugh. And in the church in Ephesus, it's the same thing. It's, but he reminds him, he says, listen, it, it, it doesn't, you Gentiles, it doesn't matter what you think about those Jews. You Jews, it doesn't matter what you think about those Gentiles, because wait a minute, there's only one body here. There's only one identity. So if there's only one identity, I should be willing to lose whatever baggage I came with so that I can unite with the people of God. The preference, the, all that stuff. Not, and it's the presence of the Spirit. Just how many Holy Spirits are there? There's just one. That means that this guy from Texas, he's got the same Holy Spirit. You have the same Spirit that I do? It sounds a little different coming out of you, but you know, it's a, you've got the same Spirit as me. You know? Travis lives in Poundle. You have the same Spirit in you as me? We've, there's one Spirit. That's the basis for unity. And, and, and listen, that's why, ju just, this is why we need to give each other a little bit of grace. Because we're not united because we're from the same area, we like the same food, we have the same hobbies, we have the same, even because we have the same political persuasions. We're not united about any of those things. So you know what we can do about those things? 
we can kind of let those things go. And say, well, you might do this a little different, you might do that a little different, but we have the same Holy Spirit. We're part of the same body. So that's where we're united. There were churches in 2020 and 2021, there were churches all around our country that divided because of how the church handled COVID. One of the biggest causes of division in the church in North America was over how they handled COVID. There are, there are, I could go around the room and I could get, I don't know how many people are in here, maybe 50 or 60 people, I could get 50 different opinions on COVID matters if I went around the room, right? It divided people. Whereas, can I say something kind of bold, and don't take it the wrong way, but in those churches, people should have just got behind their leaders and just said, hey, I disagree about this or that, but you know what? We're united on the mission of this church and who we represent, and so I'm on board. Otherwise, what's the point in having leaders in the church if not to deal with these things? All right. I might have made some of you mad there, so I'll move on now. I don't think so, though. I mean, I, I've just been impressed with a great divert. I mean, just take the COVID issue alone. There is a super... I've talked with a lot of you. You've tried to convince me of things. I've tried to convince some of you of things outside of the pulpit. But you know what? It's not, it's not just that we agree to disagree. That's not the point. That's just kind of a lame oh, we agree to disagree. No, it's that we agree on a greater purpose and a greater calling. So we are, we're okay disagreeing on those things because they don't serve the greater calling. And churches divide over style and music and they, they divide over this issue and that issue. When Let's just get to the scriptures. The basis for unity. First of all, in verse number four, you saw one spirit. We've got the same spirit even as you're called in one hope of your calling. Verse number five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There's something else here that you can't help but notice if you stop. There are three individuals mentioned in verses four, five, and six. And those individuals are who? Kathy's got it. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three in one. The Trinity. God, by His identity, is a God of unity. That three would become one. The church now, we as believers, are united with Christ. That means in some sense, and, and, and I'm not going to go too far on this because you get into some theological questions, but in some sense, we are then united with that, with that Trinitarian expression of the Godhead to say that we share in that unity that has existed from eternity past and will always exist for eternity future. That is a basis for a unified church. And not only that, but the grace of Jesus. So we see the basis for unity is the presence of the Spirit, the unity of the Trinity, now the grace of Jesus. Paul says not only that, 
But it says in verse 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, that's Jesus, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, I don't have time to get into, it's almost a, a, a whole separate doctrinal teaching here, so I just want to get to the application of it. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. The point is this, there was a miraculous occurrence with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And while we don't have time to unpack all the depths of that, the point is this, when all of that happened in Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he did what for us? He gave us what? Gifts. He gifted us. He gifted us. He gave us gifts. Verse 9, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And verse 11, the first three words, could you read the first three words with me? And he, and he gave. He gave. Jesus gave us what we need to be his church, to be his body. And that gift brings us to the plan for unity. The plan for unity in verses 11 through 13. Verse 11 through 13 says this, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the plan for unity, back up to verse 11, he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The plan for unity is that there be, first of all, unifying leaders in the church. You see that here? That there be unifying leaders in the church. Now, there are also to be unifying members, and that's going to come next week, part two. Aren't you glad? Because we'd only be, you know, 45% done right now. So we're going to be good now. The membership isn't what's expounded in this passage. The leadership is expounded in this passage. Next week, we'll look at the membership. Part of the plan, though, is for there to be unifying leaders. Now, looking at verse 11, apostles, it says some apostles and some prophets. Now, if you study this elsewhere and you compare scripture with scripture, uh, we do not believe that the office of the, of the apostle and the prophet any longer exists. In fact, you can find the scripture that says that there is a foundation that was laid. Jesus Christ was the cornerstone, and then there's the apostle's and the prophets. The scriptures spell that out. Jesus Christ cornerstone, apostles and prophets are the foundation, and then the church is built on, built on that foundation. So we were given the gift. Aren't you thankful that we were given apostles and prophets? You say, well, why? Because that's how we're reading what we're reading today. The gift of the apostles and prophets was to give us our New Testament. The, New Test the Bible says that these scriptures, in the word of God, we have everything that we need for all things that pertain unto life and godliness. 
We have it all in the scriptures because of the gift of the apostles and prophets. But then he mentions these other leaders in the church. He mentions evangelists and then pastors and teachers. I would view the evangelist very much in the same way that we view missionaries today or church planters today. Evangelist literally means one who brings the gospel. These are the, now we all do the work of evangelists, don't we? We all evangelize. But there are people that are called, and they, in fact, you're reading a, you, in your bulletin, you got a, a letter from a family that is doing the work of the evangelist in Cambodia. And they're taking the gospel to places where there are no churches. They're doing exactly what the early church did and bringing the gospel where it has not gone before. And there's a purpose behind it. But then once the gospel is established there, there's another leadership position that, that is needed. And that is the what? Yeah, the pastors and teachers. Now, I believe, and I'll, I'll show you this really quickly, that what you have here in pastor and teacher is the same role. And there's a reason for that in the Greek. And you see it in the English, too. The English follows the Greek. You see where it says, he gave some apostles and what? Some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. The article goes with each group. There's a Greek article that goes with each. It's represented here in your word some. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. There's a little bit of disagreement over this, but as I you compare this to the, to the other scriptures, I believe this is showing the role of the elder, the role of the bishop, or the role of the pastor in the church. And We could do a whole Bible study on that, explaining that role. The, the, the role of the elder, but it is the role of the shepherd and teacher, oversight and explanation of the word. But the job of the leader in this context, the job of all these people, these leaders in the church, is to lead in unity, to lead in unity, unifying leaders. Why? There's purpose behind it, though. There's a purpose. It's not just unity for unity's sake. It's because there's a mission, and that is this. The mission is the perfecting of the saints. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints. Anybody perfect yet in here? Nope, not me either. This whole point of this unified local church is this. We're on a mission leading each of us toward that perfect day that we stand before Jesus. Where we're growing in holiness. Perfection is that, is that which we keep moving toward, yet do not ever fully arrive to. But don't you see how that work is hindered by a disunified body? You find disunified churches, and you know what you'll find? You'll find people that are not being properly discipled. And here's what happens sometimes. A church grows and is discipling one another and people progressing in their faith, and then all those people have been discipled. They're, they're, they know the word, but they become disunified. And all that disunity, what happens now when new people come in? Do they get discipled? No. Nobody's building into them because we're focused on what we need. Perfecting of the saints, and then it says, for the work of the ministry. This is what we'll pick up on next week. Ministry, serving, being the hands of Jesus, doing the work of Jesus, takes a unified church. 
The leader's job is not to do the work. The leader's job is to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. That's my commercial for next week, so y'all come back now. So, and then finally, the ultimate purpose and plan for unity is the edifying, the edifying of the body of Christ. That word edify is a wonderful word. It's two Greek words put together. To build and house. It literally said, it literally means the job of the job of you and I as members, the job of leaders of the church, all of our job is to take this house, and not the not the building and the architecture, but this house right here, this body right here, and build the house. Build it, build it, build it. So can I ask you this morning, what is your relationship to the body of Christ? We talked about the wonder of the old identity is gone, we now belong to Jesus and his people. How would you describe your relationship to Christ's body? Oh, I kind of have a casual relationship, I come and go. Or are you, would you say, I am fully united. I am fully engaged. I'm fully devoted to the people for whom Christ died, to the body of Christ. What is, how would you describe your relationship to the body of Christ? But maybe you're here and you say, you know what? I've never been united to Christ's body. I still have my old identity. I'm a, maybe you're a religious person, maybe you're not. Has there been a time in your life where you said, you know what? Who I am is not good enough. I'm just a sinner. I need Jesus. Do you mean Jesus died for the church? Yes, but, but that means Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you personally as well. Have you ever received Christ? Have you, have you ever believed on Jesus alone for salvation? If not, that's the very first step. You say, yes, it's not about who I am. It's about who Jesus is. Jesus, I receive you. At that moment, you become united to Christ. You become united to his body. So the application is for both. Those this morning who you've never been saved, you've never been born again, you need to receive Christ who died for you. The Christian, if you have, you're, you say, well, I've done that. How's your relationship to the body of Christ? Could we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a couple of minutes as we conclude? This is our time of prayer. We appreciate your attention through the message, but this is really where the most important step is made. The most important step is taken right now. And that step is this. What will you do with what has been said this morning? What will you do with what you've heard? What will you do with what, what the Bible says? First off, if you've never been born again, if, you're, if you say, I don't, I'm not a part of the body of Christ. I'm, I'm a sinner. Would Jesus even let me be a part? Of course he would. He came for you. Right now, wherever you are, whether you're in this room or you're watching the video today, you can receive Jesus by faith. Just in your heart, call out to him. Pray a simple prayer. There's, there's no magic words that will save anybody. But if your heart is believing on Christ, express that to him in prayer right now. Say, dear Jesus, I do know that I'm a sinner, I'm lost, but I believe that you died for me. 
and that you rose again. And right now, I put my faith and my trust in you and you alone. I receive you by faith. Would you do that right now? If you've never done that before, receive Jesus by faith. Be united to Christ. Be saved from your sins. Christian, you are saved. You are part of the body of Christ. Has the Holy Spirit convicted you about something? Is there disunity coming up or maybe just an apathy? As the instruments softly play, let's just have a quiet time of prayer for each of us to reset our hearts before the Lord this morning. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful relationship you've called us into. God, I pray that we would honor you as your local visible body. Bless this church, Lord. Bless each member. I pray that we truly be your people, called out for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name I pray.